Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about the industry-related effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some AGTA news. A quick note, the episode was recorded a few days before President Biden announced the U.S. ban on imports of Russian diamonds. It's still an interesting and topical discussion, but we wanted to timestamp it before diving in. While we strive to be timely, this is a quickly developing story. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from LA. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. There's a few flurries out there. Oh, are there? Oh no. I'm coming in soon. I'll see you in a little over a week's time for all the award events. And even though I'm excited and it's great to have that opportunity to see people, I have a heavy heart this week and last week and, and I presumably for many weeks to follow because of what's happening over in Ukraine. It'll be nice to be festive with people and reconnect and see everybody in person. And so on the backdrop, again, to our world continues to be very, very scary and very, very sad. Yeah. And uh, we're taping this, uh, I guess, a couple hours after news broke that, uh, I guess, some kind of children's hospital was bombed. It was ugly before, and it looks like it just keeps getting worse and uglier. And, uh, you know, we wish the best for the people of Ukraine. I would also say even the people of Russia, you know, the the innocent people caught up in this. It's just, you know, we wish the best for everybody. It's just so disgusting and brutal. Yeah. Well, one other preface, and you, you mentioned we're taping this a couple hours after the news. We're also taping this a week before our listeners are listening to it. So even though we expect that the things we're going to talk about are going to reverberate through this industry for years if not the entire decade, you know, whatever happens on the ground in Ukraine over the next week, once we finish taping is is anybody's guess. So we're not 100% up to date. But we do think what we're going to discuss in terms of the impacts on the supply chain on diamond prices on gold and just the image of Russian goods in our marketplace will certainly be relevant for a long time to come. One other thing I I should say is, you know, most people that know me know that I'm Russian. I was born in St. Petersburg at Leningrad at the time. We emigrated as part of the exodus of Jews from the Soviet Union in the late 70s. I, like many, many people in this industry, my grandparents were from Ukraine. My whole family you know, originates in the town of Gomel, which is in Belarus, but just over the border from Ukraine, part of the Pala settlement, the large region in Russia that was, or parts of actually Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Western Russia that were designated for Jews in the late 1700s, all the way up until the first wave of Jews decided to emigrate and leave, I guess in the late 1880s or so. So anyways, you know, like many people in this business, we are connected to that part of the world. Yes. And my grandmother was from Siberia and I I think she emigrated a bunch of waves ago, like in the 1900s. And, you know, just to your point about the Russian people, I have very distant relatives still in St. Petersburg, so not people I'm really in touch with, but you can't help but feel for them too. I mean, these sanctions are going to destroy them and for many years to come. And I'm, I'm sure that the vast majority of people are just terrified of their government and terrified of Putin and have absolutely no ill will. I, so many Russians have dear, dear friends and family in Ukraine. It's, it's always been you know, such a fluid relationship between those two countries and two cultures. Anyway, my heart obviously, first and foremost, goes out to the Ukrainian people. 
it's, it's certainly possible that Putin will have a change of heart or something will happen in the government and Russia Woods will withdraw or they negotiate a ceasefire and respect Ukraine's sovereignty. But certainly from what we read, it doesn't seem possible. And it just seems like it's going to keep escalating. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's terrible. And we should, we should note it also impacts our industry, which we'll talk about in a second. I do think we should probably switch to the industry conversation because like, there are so many podcasts and really wonderful discussions among people who are real students of foreign affairs that are better placed to comment on this than we are. You've done some real reporting around this, given Al Rosa's involvement in our industry and, you know, the degree to which their diamonds are critical to the supply of fueling all kinds of boom diamond sales. You know, first of all, Arosa is the biggest diamond producer by volume, not by value, but by volume. Approximately about 30% of the world's diamonds are produced by it. And it's one third owned by the Russian government, one third owned by the local Siberian province where they find the diamonds, and then one third is publicly traded. And what's interesting is Arosa, until recently, has been very much a part of this industry, of the fabric of this industry. They're involved in all the associations. If this hadn't happened, you know, you would probably see Arosa of people at the 24 Carat Club. They have positions on boards. They're a huge supplier and they're a part of this business. I think for a long time, they were extremely successful at forging their own identity apart from the Russian government. So, you know, whatever Putin would do, it didn't necessarily reflect uh, badly on them. Perhaps it should have, but it didn't because, you know, they had their own identity. And I think perhaps because of their ownership or in spite of their ownership or what have you, because perhaps the bar for a Russian company is perhaps higher, uh, they definitely went out of their way to be transparent. And especially after 2016, when they became a big issue here in the United States, they became a lot more communicative. You know, for a while, it was kind of this very mysterious organization that you couldn't penetrate. By most standards, they do take social responsibility seriously, and they do take social benefit seriously. They meet all the current standards in the industry. So as a company, most people consider them a good actor. People don't have a big issue with them. The problem is, of course, their owner. The fact that they are directly tied to the Russian government is a huge problem. Nobody wants to be associated with this, and and it, it, it's understandable. And you know, you you see on the news, people are dumping vodka, Russian vodka, down the drain and stuff like that. And the Russian tea room in here in New York is getting harassed. So. Obviously, Russian diamonds are, are going to be a very, very difficult item. I mean, you know, they are such a big player that it's going to have a big impact. Well, right. So here's my question. You may not have had these conversations yet, but, you know, big diamond buyers here, if, if they're 30% of the volume of goods and you're still able to get them from Indian dealers or Dubai, and because those diamonds... I don't know, can you even trace them back to Russia? Or you could, I suppose, if you wanted to. But if you didn't want to, if you just didn't want to know or would rather not address that kind of play dumb, you could continue selling them, correct? And so how many people do you anticipate, manufacturers, retailers, someone will actually do that? I mean, do you feel like a lot of people will just feel like their diamond sales will trump ethics at this point? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big issue is that you can't tell in, in most instances 
you know, Belgium's already said that they've tried to get, and they were successful at getting an exemption for Russian diamonds. And their logic was, well, if they don't come here, they'll just go to Dubai. So they might as well go through us because you're not really hurting anybody. And, you know, an interesting point is, you know, I was talking about Arosa before, and, you know, I talk a lot about corporate ownership and how important it is to know who owns your vendors and who eventually they're traced back to. And I think this is another example because whatever Arosa's merits or non-merits or whatever as a business, people really looked at it as something distinct from the Russian government. And in retrospect, perhaps that was a mistake because it is one third owned by the Russian government. And and, you know, we saw this also in cases like De Grisogano, where, again, whatever its merits as a business, when it came out that it was owned or allegedly owned, I should say, by the former first order of Angola, that was the end of that business. Bailey Banks and Biddle, you know, a respected chain when it was traced to Nirav Modi, the fugitive Diamantair, that closed. So who owns companies is extremely important. Who ultimately benefits? And, you know, these can be good operations and they could have good people working for them and they could have fine products. But at the end of the day, you know, if the money is going to a suspect place or a place that has issues, you know, that could be a problem. And people got mad at me when I mentioned that, you know, a lot of lab grown diamonds are produced by the Chinese military. And actually a substantial number of lab grown diamonds are produced by a company owned by the Chinese military. But, you know, that that could also be an issue. And I, I think people have to start really thinking about these things because, you know, this shows once and again that this industry is not immune from the wider political world. Right. Follow the money. I mean, no no doubt. And now more than ever. I sat through Rappaport's breakfast webinar, sort of morning presentation the other day, and then I just got an email from Rappaport, a sort of a Rappaport statement on the Russian invasion's impact on diamond prices. He was quite clear that he didn't anticipate prices would actually suffer as a result of the invasion, it would be the resulting inflation caused by shortages of things like gas and oil and wheat and all these other commodities that we depend on in our global supply chain. And that the potential for skyrocketing, I mean, we're already dealing with terrible inflation, but the prospect of even greater soaring inflation and what that would mean on diamond prices and not to mention demand, consumer demand, which we've seen has been so resilient throughout the pandemic. And I do wonder if the brakes are about to be pumped in the most drastic way possible, given what we're seeing at the gas pump. And, you know, I was a tiny little baby in the 70s. You can't help but think of gas lines in the 70s. And are we about to re-enter that twilight zone? Yeah, well, fortunately, I don't drive. So that's not <laughs> an issue for me. But um, still Americans are certainly thinking about it because yes, Europeans uh, for that I, matter. I understand my lifestyle is not common. But um, I think the people who are complaining about you know, oh, we oh, it's so terrible. We can't buy Russian goods. I mean, you know, this industry got a huge break last year from 2021 because of COVID. I mean, that was it was one of the best years the industry ever had. And, you know, if because of this Russia situation, you know, we have to make a little sacrifice. We can't buy certain goods. Sales go down. I mean, we'll probably be better off in the long run. You know, it's kind of like the global environment giveth in the global environment taketh away. And what's the most important? thing now, I believe, is to do the ethical thing. You know, I'm proud of my Russian heritage. I always will be. But there's absolutely zero love 
between me, my family, or any Russian I know, and the Russian government or the Soviet government that came before them, which we fled, in which lots of people probably wish they had fled. But yes, you're right. I mean, who's going to want to buy an engagement ring proudly set with a Russian diamond? I mean, at this point, it could be at least a decade. I, I don't know. There would certainly have to be regime change. And maybe at some point, you know, history moves on and things do change. But who knows? Russia has, has always been a very complicated place, a complicated country. And, and the people have always, I think, been pretty separate from the government. I mean, mostly they've been under its thumb for the vast, vast majority of history. You know, maybe there'll be some sympathy buying for the Russian people if that's possible in the future, but not before we feel like Ukraine and its people are on a road to rebuilding. So yeah, it'll be a long while before I think anybody's proudly buying anything Russian. Um, the other thing we haven't even talked about, which is a whole nother very, very complicated utter nest of thorns is Russian gold and what might happen with that because, you know, I was, I'm writing actually a story in the midst of writing a story for the Times about quote unquote ethical gold. And um, you can't help but think of, we talk all this talk about NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens and how utterly fungible gold is. It's like a dollar bill. You have no idea where it's come from. You can interchange it with any other gold nugget, gold bullion, gold bauble. And once it's mixed in with other pieces of gold, other supplies of gold, there it's long gone. There's no origin to it whatsoever. And so what the Russians do with their gold and how they funnel that and whether or not they'll be relying on that to fund their regime is yet another very, very thorny question. And I know that lots of advocates, you know, Amazon aid, I just got an email from them today about their concern about Russian gold and Christina Miller, another sustainability ethical sourcing advocate, another conversation she's she's in the midst of having. So this will be yet another issue that jewelers have to be very, very, very careful about and really think about their sourcing, their vendors, who owns their vendors, to your very good point earlier. This is not a time for being, for sort of letting the strength of the business carry you through. And you have to address these things. It's the hard work, but you've got to do it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And there may be uh, some kind of bill that will probably be passed by the time this comes out that will prohibit U.S. citizens from directly buying Russian gold. I'd be surprised if many direct sales are going on right now, any regardless, but that would be another uh, choke point, I guess, people are trying to cut off. You know, gold has had plenty of problems over the years. The issues with gold have rarely been as high profile as the issues with diamonds. People should be asking questions and be wary. As long as this goes on, I mean, I think the general stance of the world is to just stay away and not support it until it stops, at least until it stops and, and maybe even after. It does really boggle the mind to think about how much this is rearranging the world order and, of course, the industry world order as a result of that. You know, these trade relationships that, you know, I keep reading all these really interesting analyses of globalization and whether or not this is the end of it. That idea of sourcing from America has been a conversation for over a decade, a solid conversation about what it means to buy American, buy made in the USA. And I expect that anything made here, mined here, will see a lift because of that. These questions of sourcing are just much easier to unwind when you're dealing with Montana sapphires, for example. We're not the volume producer that other nations are, but we're also not nearly as scary or, or complicated as some other producers. And, and China, of course, is the other big question as to not only how their government reacts in response to this crisis, but 
how consumers there react, whether trade will continue, whether China is able to buy all the diamonds and all the gold and all the other things that Russia wants to sell and how that affects the global world order. So, so many questions, so many things to think about, all pretty scary and unsettling. And um, I pray for peace. Yeah, I think I think we all do. And um, so there's been a lot of uh, social media talk. I mean, I think certain organizations that Arosa plays a prominent role in, there's a divide over like at the RJC, should they still be certified since they technically meet all the criteria, but then, you know, they're bringing the organization into disrepute. So that's been kind of a behind the scenes battle that's uh, broken out a little in public. You know, they're so entangled. You've seen um, certain, and, and I, I have to say, I really find this uh, distasteful. And, you know, I think people who do it are pretty low. You still see some lab-grown players who kind of look at this as a, a business opportunity and use this to promote their product. And to me, that's a little distasteful. First of all, they have their own sourcing issues, and a lot of them don't keep track of their sourcing. And, you know, there are certainly diamonds that have been grown in Russia and Belarus, uh, uh, out there. And Russia actually was the place that originally developed the growing technology. I, I mean, it'll probably be good for the lab-grown business in that, assuming that Russian goods will be harder to get, you assume that certain uh, Indian companies who want to keep their factories open will probably start polishing lab because that's what happened a few months ago when there was another supply squeeze. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned lab-grown. I've been working on this series of special reports on uh, lab-grown diamonds uh, for, for JCK go out every Wednesday to our newsletter subscribers. So I'm always looking for lab-grown stories. And um, I happened to just turn one in and was just looking at lab-grown brands and new collections they'd introduced. And one struck me because I'd never heard of it. It was a Barcelona-based company called PD Paula. They're all DTC brands, by the way. The DTC community does seem to love lab-grown. And they called their diamonds mining-free diamonds, which maybe that's I was sort of intrigued by that. I'd never seen that descriptor. I don't know what the FTC might say about that, but I almost got the impression that with this crisis in Ukraine and Russian diamonds, maybe that would be an effective strategy for more lab-grown brands, just to emphasize not only that they're quote-unquote sustainably produced, you know, follow Rob and, and read many of his past writings on how to debunk that, but or at least how to truly analyze that and talk about sustainability in the diamond sector quite fairly and objectively. But in any case, maybe mining free would be a new tagline because then we at least know it's not Russian. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, you don't know it's not Russian, right? Because it still could have been manufactured there and it could be manufactured in China or, it, you know, could be backed by Russian. So you don't necessarily know that it's not Russian. Honestly, I think mining free, while I understand it, like I, I think non-mined is okay. Mining free always struck me as a bit disingenuous just because clearly you need mined products to produce a diamond, right? So yeah. the fact that you're saying mining free kind of indicates that there's no mining involved in the production of this diamond. And that's not true because to build whatever it is, the machines or whatever it is, you're always going to use some kind of mined products. You know, we were sort of coming on our time and I figured we, we might also mention a bit of non-Russian news that we recently got and you wrote the story so I'll just ask you about it when I heard the news it was it seemed a little abrupt but it was also very surprising not only because it was abrupt but because the news was that Doug Hucker who has been the CEO of the American Gem Trade Association the 
body of gem dealers that belong to AGTA and exhibit in Tucson, exhibit in Vegas. You know, the National Association for the Colored Stone Industry, he'd resigned or retired. Clarify the language for me. Um, I think it's safe to say he was uh, asked to leave. He had an issue with the board. And I think when I spoke to him, he said he's not retiring. So I think if this were a planned retirement, you would have seen, you know, some kind of thing in Vegas, perhaps something in New York, perhaps something in Tucson. This was very quick. So it was obviously a mutually agreed departure. I mean, I've heard a lot, you know, apparently there were some personality clashes, which I, I've heard a bit of it, but I don't necessarily have the patience to learn every little uh, nuance. But I think perhaps the bigger issue is what role does an organization like AGTA play? And, you know, I think Doug was extremely effective. You know, he dealt a lot with government because, you know, gems have a lot of the same issues that diamonds have and gold has as far as sourcing. And one of the things that we've seen in the colored gemstone community is there's not necessarily the kind of support for responsible sourcing, perhaps, or the initiatives towards responsible sourcing that, you know, you see in diamonds just because, you know, it's such a free-for-all and most of it is not organized and it's all done by these very small-scale miners. And there are exceptions like Moyo Gems, which is a very nice initiative that's run by a nonprofit. But perhaps going forward, you know, you think, I mean, AGTA, we all know that it runs a trade show and it does education and it does a lot of great things, but can it be more of a spokesperson on kind of these more contentious issues? I think part of the problem with that is that there is not a lot of agreement within the gem trade on that because people do feel bad for these poor guys who are risking their lives sometimes to, to get these gems in these very difficult situations. So, I mean, people don't necessarily want them to starve and to take away their livelihoods. It's extremely complicated. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, now that Doug has uh, left, what direction it goes and what role should it play? And it's a shame. I mean, I think Doug has 24 years. I mean, that's an incredible time to serve as, as CEO of an organization. And uh, he's a major player in our industry. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of him. I mean, he's been around for a long, long, long time. I guess bummed that it had to happen seemingly so abruptly, but I'm sure we'll see Doug around. And uh, we're just on our time. And I should say, I would like to end on a positive note. And the positive note is that you mentioned all these buying opportunities for colored stones. Well, there's a big one in Vegas because we just, the JCK show just announced that the AGTA pavilion is back. So it's been a couple of years, maybe two or possibly three years since AGTA left the JCK Las Vegas show. And as of this morning, they are officially back. So um, uh, that pavilion opens June 9th, the day before the rest of the show opens on June 10th. And so at least, uh, you know, yay, we get to have the best colored stone dealers in the country congregating at our show. So small little bits of happiness. I'll take it. Awesome. All right. Well, good to chat. Thanks for your all your insights. And I uh, can't wait to see you. All right. Take care. Peace. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Kay.